Please join with me as we read Matthew 4, starting in verse 1 to 11. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set on him, set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down. For it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, Again it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, All these I will give to you, if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. If I have chocolate in the fridge in my study, it's a bad idea. Generally speaking, when things are normal, I'm able to resist the temptation to eat the whole block in a day or two. However, I've noticed over the last few weeks, especially as I've uh, struggled through some challenges and felt uh, burdened and discouraged, I have not been able to resist the temptation to do exactly that. And whole blocks of chocolate have been devoured in far shorter periods of time than I would like. Now, that's quite a small temptation with quite small consequences. Although I think this is the first time my wife is hearing about it, so maybe the consequences will be bigger than I think. (laughs) What about bigger temptations? with bigger consequences. Perhaps today will be one uh, such test. Eating more than you should. Treating a family member the way perhaps you ought not to. What about other temptations, like being more concerned about feeding our belly more than our soul? Temptations like daydreaming or fantasizing about a better life Or a better wife, like seeking seeking happiness in worldly glory instead of finding contentment in God, saying, well done, good and faithful servant. What do you do when you are tempted to sin? Do you resist? Do you give in easily? Do you justify it quickly? Do you run to God? Or do you get angry at Him for not letting you indulge in sin for even just a moment? Now, to be clear, our passage this morning isn't a handbook on how to resist temptation. 
Because as we'll soon see, this is yet another incredible, unique chapter in Jesus' life and ministry. There is so much happening in this interaction which magnifies who Jesus is, and we will dive into that. Yet at the same time, it calls us to reflect on our own response to not just the devil's temptation to sin, but that of our own flesh and the world around us. And it invites us to see how Jesus enables us to resist temptation. This passage is made up of a brief introduction and brief conclusion with three tests of Jesus in between. And we'll look at it this morning with three headings that follow that structure with some considerations for us in the final section. Oh, and the, uh, the second heading will have three subheadings following the text. So here, here are our headings for this morning. One, tested by God. Two, tested positive. That's uh, related to the title, Jesus Tests Positive, which we'll get to. And the three subheadings, lived by the word, didn't test the Lord, took the long roads of glory. And then finally, tempted as we are. If you're taking notes, they will come up again. And each of those subheadings there describe what Jesus did in order to pass the test. So with our Bibles and our hearts open, let's come to God's Word together this morning, starting with our first section, our first heading. Number one, tested by God. When you sit or you take a test, the question being asked is, Are you the real deal? If it's a maths test, do you know how to do math? If it's a driving test, do you know how to drive? Incredibly, some people pass that test, even though that might not be true. If it's a COVID test, the question is, do you have COVID? In this passage, Jesus sits the test to prove that he really is the Son of God. Let's read from verse 1. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. That you might recall from last week's passage that Jesus was baptized by John and that when he was baptized, the Holy Spirit descended on him like a dove and came to rest on him. Well, it's quite appropriate that in the next scene, in verse 1 of our chapter, Jesus is led up by this same Holy Spirit into the wilderness. Here is immediate evidence that the Spirit is with Jesus, and not only with Him, but also leading Him. And why does the Spirit lead Him into the wilderness? To be tempted by the devil. To be tempted by the devil. You may have noticed that I've been uh, saying tested instead of tempted. And that's because the original Greek word could be translated as either. One of the reasons some people uh, don't like the the translation tempted uh, is because it implies that Jesus was genuinely considering sin. Such a thing is impossible for a sinless Savior, as we saw last week. I think both words actually bring out aspects of what's going on here, which is why you'll hear me use both. Uh, But one thing we can all agree on is that whatever the nature of Jesus' temptation, it was one that was without sin. He was not tempted the same way that we are tempted towards sin. Hebrews 4.15 makes that clear. He was tempted without sin. 
Now, the other reason this is important is because most of us probably think of Jesus as being tempted by the devil. And that is certainly true. That's what we just read. But remember that it was the Spirit who led Jesus into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Again, this is one of the reasons why the translation of the word is important, because we read in other parts of Scripture that God does not tempt, right? The Spirit is leading Jesus to this test. Think of it like this. Now, our kids who are here this morning, I think all of you, all the ones who are here, oh no, we, not all, almost all are homeschooled, right? So for the homeschooling kids, I just want you to imagine something for a second, For our kids who aren't homeschooled, when you go to school and you sit a test, although Xavier, I think you're a bit too young to have sat any tests. (laughs) When you sit a test, who is the one testing you? Have a guess for for the kids who are homeschooled. Who tests normally in school? Well, mum. That's right. When you're homeschooled, it's mum. And who would mum be in a school? A teacher. That's right. Usually it's the teacher who tests you. But who is the one who sent you there? Who is the one who enrolled you in the school and then dropped you off that morning and then picked you up in the afternoon? Mum or dad, that's right. Your parents. So even though your teachers are the ones who directly tested you, your parents were behind the testing. Now that is an imperfect illustration of how it is here with God and the devil. That's why my heading is tested by God. It's why when English translations of the Bible, you might notice in your uh, translation, when they add a heading to this section, it usually says the temptation of Jesus or something similar and not Jesus tempted by the devil. Do you notice that? We find this 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 understanding that God stands behind is providential over all things all over the Bible. Genesis 50 verse 20 is a classic example. When Joseph says says to his brothers, uh, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. He's recognizing that that the works of of evil creatures are not somehow outside of God's sovereignty. God remains... Sovereign even over the evil actions of creatures. He is not responsible for them. He is not behind them in the sense that he himself has evil within him to produce that. But such evil is not outside of his control. Now, I know this can be hard to grasp, and and it's worth continuing to wrestle with and and talk about and consider and come back to Scripture about, but at the very least, we must see as Christians that this provides great comfort to us. Why? Because it means that no matter how great evil might be, God is always greater Even the devil's schemes are not enough to snatch you out of God's hands. You can take great comfort in the fact that the devil is not someday going to beat God and somehow drag you into hell against your will. Brothers and sisters, if you feel like, uh, if you feel like what you've done or who you are is somehow beyond even God being able to save, it's just not true. 
Not even your own evil thoughts and inclinations are beyond God. You are not somehow able to escape Him. God stands by His word. And if whom the Son sets free is free indeed, then they are truly free. Trust Him and trust His word, which is, as we'll see, what Jesus does. Let's continue in verse 2. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, He was hungry. I don't know about you, but if you don't eat anything for 40 days and 40 nights, you'd be hungry too. Now, the number 40 is a pretty special one and seen a few times in the Bible. Kids, can you think of any other instances where the number 40 is important in the Bible? Yeah? Genesis, where? In the flood, the 40 days and 40 nights of the flood. Did you have a different one there, Beck? No? Anyone else? Yeah? That's right, when the Israelites had to go into the desert for 40 years. Any others? Let me open it up to the adults. Can you think of any? Oh, yeah, Connor. I missed that, sorry. Who was? Nineveh. Yes, well done. Jonah saying to Ninevites, 40 days and you'll be destroyed. He doesn't even preach the gospel. That's right, good job. Adults, can you think of any other significant 40s? Oh, Beck's gone. Jericho. Ooh, seven days is that one. But that's also an important number in the Bible. Anyone? Well, uh, of all, there are there are others, right? Uh, over over forty times, actually, there are different forties. Some more important than others. Now, of all the different 40s in the Bible, there are three significant ones in the Old Testament that I think are being swept up into this 40 that we see in this passage. The first is Moses' own encounters with God on Mount Sinai. Deuteronomy 9 verse 9 tells us, Moses says, gives his own testimony saying, I remained on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights, and I neither ate bread nor drank water. He fasts just as... Jesus does in our passage. Later down the track in 1 Kings 19, we have the prophet Elijah who is on the run from King Jezebel. I believe Josh preached on this about a year or so ago. And we see that after he stops for a period of time and asks God to take his life, he is in such despair. Instead, an angel appears to him and provides him with food and drink. And then this food and drink that he receives sustains him for 40 days and 40 nights, meaning he didn't have to eat or drink anything else during that time. As he made his way to Horeb, which is also known as Mount Sinai. I mention these two examples in particular because Moses and Elijah were prophets who foreshadowed the greater prophet who was to come. They are types of Jesus. They are shadows. If you see a shadow of someone, then you get a general shape, a general idea of what that person looks like and, and, and you know, what their shape is. But you can't see clearly who it is until you actually see the, the actual person. That's what Moses and Elijah pointed to. They pointed to the actual coming of the great prophet, Jesus. And Jesus fasting for 40 days here in our passage in the same way that these men of God did is another hint that they were the shadow and he is the real thing. 
these great men of God were types of, they were the ones that anticipated the Son of God. This is one of the reasons why they are the two men who appear on the Mount of Transfiguration. You can go and read about that in Matthew 17. But even more important than these connections is how Jesus proves to be the Son of God that Israel never was. When God led Israel out of Egypt and into the wilderness, he called them his firstborn son in Exodus 4, 22 to 23. And Matthew, as you might remember over our series, has already hinted at the fact that Jesus is God's faithful son when he quoted Hosea 11 in Matthew 2, 15. Do you remember what he said? This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son. So when we read that Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness and that he fasted for 40 days and 40 nights, we can't help but think of the nation of Israel who was led into the wilderness and then wandered for 40 years. You see, Israel was supposed to be the Son of God. And was supposed to obey him faithfully. They didn't. But Jesus would. Which brings us to our second heading. Tested positive. As I mentioned earlier, to test positive on something is to be proven that you are the genuine thing. Kids, how many of you have taken a COVID test and tested positive? A few, quite a number of us, yeah. Well, for our family, it was helpful to have tests because for Zai especially, had he not tested positive, nobody would have known that he had COVID because immediately after he tested positive, he was jumping up and down and dancing all around the living room. Unlike his dad, who was in bed with fevers and all sorts of things. You see, the test, it proves whether you have the real thing or not. To be COVID positive is to prove and to show that you have COVID. The tests that Jesus had to go through proved whether he was the true son of God or not. And he tested positive. Let's read about the first temptation of the devil under our first subheading. Lived by the word. Jesus lived by by the word. Let's read from verse 3. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. This is the only time that the devil is called the tempter in the Bible, and it's certainly the most appropriate time. The first words out of his mouth immediately challenge what we just saw in Jesus' baptism. Remember God the Father's words that came from heaven. This is my beloved Son. God saying this means it's true. It does not require any more proof in order for it to be true. And yet here is the tempter seeking to challenge that declaration. 
If you are the Son of God, the devil says. Now, this is not the first time he's challenged what God has said. All you have to do is go back to the first chapters of Genesis, where the tempter, kids, what, what shape did the tempter take in the, in the Garden of Eden? A snake, that's right. He twisted God's words from the very beginning. You remember, he says, did God really say? And sadly, Adam and Eve chose to trust his words rather than God's. And church, beware of the devil's lies. It is a key part of his playbook. Think about the times when you are tempted to sin or to distrust God. More often than not, isn't it when you wonder if what God has said is really true? Are my trials and God's discipline really for my own good? Does he really work all things together for the good of those who love him? Will God really create a new heavens and new earth that his people will live in for all eternity? Is that really coming? Now, doubts and faith struggles are a normal part of the Christian walk. But recognize that anything or anyone who calls the words of God a lie, they're on the same team as the tempter. Now, let's be clear here. The devil knows who Jesus is. It's not like he doesn't believe that Jesus really is the Son of God and, and he needs proof. You know, if you are the Son of God, you know, prove it to me. Now, he knows that. And some of his demons later on will even address Jesus as the Son of God. No, the devil is tempting Jesus to redefine what it means to be the Son of God. Will Jesus be the Son of God according to God's will, or will he be according to the devil's will? That is the test. The first temptation taps into Jesus' physical hunger. He was fully man. He hadn't eaten for 40 days, and so he must have been really hungry. I don't know about you, but when I haven't eaten even just for one day, then like, you know, just bread, it seems like it's the best thing I've ever had in my life. Now, that would have been a strong temptation. But Jesus sees through what might seem like a reasonable question. You know, you're hungry, just turn these stones into bread. No, Jesus responds and he quotes from Deuteronomy uh, chapter 8, verse 3. He says, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. What's a bit ironic about this quotation that Jesus quotes from is that it is right in the middle of God telling the Israelites how he did provide manna from heaven in the wilderness. If you go back and read Deuteronomy chapter 8, even in that verse right there, you can see God humbled them and let them hunger, and then he fed them manna that they may know that man does not live by bread alone. You can imagine the devil saying, hang on, you, you can't quote that back at me. That's the, that's the point of that verse. God provided the, the bread and food miraculously for Israel. But here's the thing. In this chapter, in Deuteronomy chapter 8, God is not talking about how he's so amazing because he can provide water and food supernaturally. 
As a matter of fact, if you look at verse 2, the verse just before this one, God makes clear that the reason he did let them hunger and then give them food was because he was testing the Israelites and humbling them to see if they would keep his commandments. He wanted to know whether Israel would be faithful. And so the point and purpose of Deuteronomy 8 verse 3, which Jesus quotes, is the same. Israel, let their stomach do the talking. But Jesus lets God and his word do the talking. Israel readily discarded God's word to fill their stomachs. They readily distrusted everything that he had said and promised about how he would look after them when he brought them out of Egypt. And they said, no, we want food and we want it now. And Jesus knew that God's word had to be obeyed over the devils. That he need not respond to his physical hunger. That he could trust God's word. You see, the devil is trying to undermine this very point. He's tempting Jesus to perform a miracle that he doesn't need to do just so that he can feed his hungry stomach. It's like he's saying, why why do this son of God thing the way that God wants you to do it? You've got the power. You're hungry. Might as well make bread from rocks. But no, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Jesus understands there is far more to life than just keeping yourself physically alive. Jesus' response and quotation of Deuteronomy 8.3, it flies in the face of the atheist. Kids, do any of you know what an atheist is? Oh, that's a, maybe a new one. Adults, somebody want to tell us? There is no, there is no creator. What? <laughs> person that denies any God. person that denies that any God exists, that any God is real. All we have is what we have around us in this life. You see, if you believe there's nothing beyond the atoms that make up the universe, then this statement that that Jesus has just quoted from Deuteronomy, it doesn't make any sense. And perhaps you're such a person here this morning, perhaps your life philosophy is eat, drink, and be merry. If that's you, I'm so glad that you're with us today, and I hope that you keep considering these things. As Christians, this verse that Jesus quotes is exactly what we believe to be true. There is more to life than filling the stomach and seeking pleasure. Why? Because God has spoken and his words are words of life. And where do we find those words? In the Bible. And this is how Jesus himself lived. You see, you see it not only in the fact that he quotes this verse, which says it outright, but also in the fact that his authority in quoting it is the word itself. It is written, Jesus says. Nothing more needs to be said. It's in the Bible. And therefore, that is all he needed to rebuke the devil. Kids, do any of you like board games? 
Yeah, some nods. Do you like playing by the rules or do you prefer making it up as you go along? Hmm? Rules? Yeah. I was talking with Joe this week about board games and we're talking about how we like to make sure that they are played by the rules. Whenever there's a dispute in the game, if somebody's trying to argue about trying to get away with something shifty, it's easily resolved if you just open up the rule book and say, it is written. You are welcome to try that again next time you play a board game. I love that Jesus' response to this first temptation clearly demonstrates the verse that he just quoted. And it also sets up how he responds to all the other tests. Brothers and sisters, against temptation, the word is the weapon. For Jesus, the word was the weapon. And for us, the word is the weapon. Do we have the same kind of ready response in times of temptation? Do we say to the world and to our flesh and to the devil when they tempt us to distrust and disobey God? Do we say, it is written? How can we expect to fight against the temptations of evil without the sword of the Spirit in our hands? It is the one weapon that we have in the armor of God, as Ephesians 6 reminds us. No soldier goes into battle all dressed up and fully armored, but with no weapon. If you did that, you might survive for a little bit, but you'll eventually be overrun. What good is a sword if it remains in its sheath? Or worse, what good is a sword if you don't know how to use it? How many troubles would we avoid if we devoured the word of God the same way that we would devour a loaf of bread after a 40-day fast? How many more temptations would we resist if we were constantly nourished by Bible bread? Brothers and sisters, read it, hear it, study it, memorize it, meditate on it, share it together with others, with one another. As good as, it, as good as it is to have reading plans and accountability and all of those things to help us get into the Bible more, to get into the habit of reading the Bible more, none of that will help if we don't hunger for God's Word. Now, if you're struggling with that, that's one reason why you should fast. That's, as a matter of fact, that's something we should all do regardless of whether we're struggling with it. Why? Because when you feel the pang of physical hunger, it is a reminder to you, not, not just that you need bread to live, but that you need God's word to live. I pray that we would be a church that hungers after the word. A church like Oliver Twist who comes back to God and who says, please, sir, I want some more. Our Lord Jesus lived by the word, which is how he passed the next test. He didn't test the Lord. As part of the test, Jesus is tested to see whether he would put the Lord to the test. Does that make sense? If that's a bit confusing, let's hopefully clear that up. Reading from verse 5. 
Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Now let's just pause there for a second. If you were Jesus, how would you respond? After all, the devil has just quoted scripture at him. It's like he's saying, okay, if you want to live by the word of God, how about these words of God? And this isn't too dissimilar to circumstances that we often face as Christians today, right? Has a non-Christian ever said to you, but doesn't your Bible say... And more often than not, what follows is a verse that gets quoted to support the point. I had this happen to me when a teacher at a middle school asked about the story in 2 Kings 1 of Elijah calling down fire on two groups of 50 soldiers. Now, he was right about that passage. Elijah really does do that. And God really does send fire from heaven to consume those soldiers. But he used the story to say that God is therefore not good. And that's not true about God at all. So what did I do? God, I did my best to engage him, but if I were to have that conversation today, I hope it would have been go a lot better. You cannot use the Bible to make points that you have already decided you want to make. Why not? Because that is exactly what the devil does. He does it right here to Jesus, and he continues to do it today. I hope that gives us enough motivation to steer clear of that very practice. So what's so wrong about the devil's use of Scripture? The first thing to note is that he quotes this from Psalm 91. And this psalm is all about how the person who finds shelter in the Lord will be protected. It opens with that very well-known verse. He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. And then the rest of the psalm describes many situations where the Lord will protect and watch over that one who trusts in Him. As with all of Scripture, it's important to pay attention to the genre. The psalmist here is using poetic license to describe the way that the Lord looks after those who trust in him. And he draws upon ways that God has already done that with previous people in Israel's history. And one of the most important things we can do when it comes to understanding God's word is recognizing that it has many genres, many types of writing within it. The Bible is not just one big rule book for a game. And so the devil takes these verses from Psalm 91, verses 11 and 12, and he tells Jesus that he should prove that this is true by throwing himself down from the pinnacle of the temple. Now, we, we don't know exactly which part of the temple is being referred to here, but we know that it certainly uh, was, was a very high part of it, the pinnacle, the highest part. And the ancient Jewish historian Josephus says this about one of the sections of the temple in Jerusalem, which overlooks the Kidron Valley, for while the valley was very deep and its bottom could not be seen, if anyone looked down from the top of the battlements or down both those altitudes, he would be giddy 
while his sight could not reach to such an immense depth. Basically, without divine intervention, if Jesus were to throw himself off, he would not survive that fall. And this is the test. Even though Psalm 91 is speaking hyperbolically, the devil knows that it speaks truly about Jesus. If he really is the Son of God, then of course God would be able to command angels to hold him so that he doesn't even strike his foot against the stone. We know this to be true, don't we? Jesus himself says later on in Matthew 26, right before he's about to be crucified, that if he wanted to, he could call upon 12 legions of angels to protect him. Jesus' ability to do that is not in question. The devil is right that Jesus can do that. But he's wrong in the way that he uses it. And he fails to take into account what the rest of Scripture has to say. Which is why Jesus responds as he does in verse 7. Jesus said to him, again it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And when Jesus says again here, I think a better translation is actually in the NASB, where he says, on the other hand, it is written. You see, Jesus is not just saying again, as in, you know, let me quote to you scripture like I did before. No, he's saying also, this is also what scripture says, and and, and it's important to ensure that we read all of it rather than taking parts of it and making it mean what we want. He's pointing out that in order to understand and apply these verses from Psalm 91 correctly, you need to fit it into the rest of God's words. And so he quotes here, once again from Deuteronomy, chapter 6, verse 16. Notice what the rest of that verse says. As you tested him at Massa. Massa was the place where Israel grumbled about not having anything to drink. And its name basically means to test. You can read about that in Exodus 17. In that incident, Israel tested God. How? Well, kids, do you know the phrase to twist your arm? Do you know that phrase? You heard that before? Anyone? Yeah? Yeah, no? Maybe? It means to try and get someone to do something against their will, to try and get them to do what you want them to do. Well, that's what Israel did here. They wanted to twist God's arm to give them water that they wanted. Now, God graciously gave it to them, but he commands them later to not do it in Deuteronomy 6 because it is an act of unbelief and disobedience. And so this is what the devil is, try- is doing with Jesus. He's trying to twist God's arm. He's trying to say, hey, Jesus, you've got this ability. You're hungry. Use it. Oh, sorry, the angels. <laughs> and Jesus sees right through it. I remember once hearing about a youth pastor whose bus was out of fuel when they were about to go to a youth thing. And so they decided to fill the fuel tank with water and pray that God would turn it into petrol. Now, could God do that? Of course he could. I'm not sure how turning water into petrol would be any harder for God than turning water into wine. 
But that is trying to twist God's arm. As you might expect, it didn't work. Brothers and sisters, as we come to God's word, we must come to it on God's terms. To come to it looking for verses that you can arm yourself with so you can claim something that God never promises is not a good idea. That's not faith. That is twisting scripture to twist God's arm. And that is testing God. Ironically, at the very end of the test in verse 11, Jesus does get taken care of by angels. Of course God can do it. But he does all things according to his good and perfect will. Because the Lord is the only God. And that brings us to our our final subheading. Jesus took the long road to glory. It's become a bit of a stereotype, hasn't it, that more often than not, if you try and take a new shortcut, it ends up being longer. Has anyone experienced that? Yeah. I can't tell you how many times I have thought to myself, uh, pretty sure this street, it, it connects back to the other one. Uh, at least 90% of the time, it doesn't. The devil tempts Jesus here to take a shortcut. And this is definitely a shortcut that would have ended not just in a longer trip, but in tragedy. Let's read from verse 9. Sorry, verse 8. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, All these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. In many ways, this final test summarizes all of them. As one commentator put it, here the devil drops his mask. You see, before he was trying to test Jesus in subtle ways, but now he's not even bothering with the subtlety. This is what he really wants. Now, the devil obviously has some kind of supernatural ability. You know, it's, it's quite unlikely that the devil carried Jesus to the top of the temple or to the top of this mountain, right? And not only that, but you wouldn't even be able to see all the kingdoms of the world from a very high mountain anyway. The earth was not flat, not even back then. So we don't know how, but the devil somehow shows Jesus all the kingdoms of the world and, importantly, all their glory. All this I will give to you, he says, for the low, low price of falling down and worshipping me. I mean, how hard is that, right? You can have all the kingdoms and all the glory. All you got to do is bow and worship. You know what they say about a deal that seems too good to be true? It usually is. Jesus knew what lay ahead of him. He knew the long road of agony and suffering that he would have to walk before he would enter into his glory. Before he would be crowned king of all kings. The devil offered him a shortcut to that glory. A shortcut to that kingship. Why take the long road? He says, I'm offering you a path to power and glory that bypasses all the sufferings, all the trials. 
Which one would you choose? To fall down and worship is the natural response one has to a God. But in the Old Testament, when you combine these two together of falling down and worshiping in one action, you see it most often in one chapter, one that we have actually preached on, Daniel chapter 3. The people are commanded to fall down and worship the golden image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up, and that is exactly what they do. Those words are found several times in that chapter. Fall down and worship me, the devil says. Disobey God by breaking the first and the second commandments. Which would you choose? We are so conditioned in our day to hate suffering in our age that for most of us, we think that a little suffering in this life is not a price worth paying for eternal bliss with God. More often than not, we we don't think of that as as a deal that's too good to be true, to think that, man, following Christ is going to involve taking up our cross, and yet there will be an eternal glory and an eternity with God that we have waiting for us. You put that on paper, and anybody would take that. Yet how often do we think to ourselves, man, I don't know if this suffering and difficulty of following Jesus is worth it. That price is maybe a bit too steep. I suspect that the devil's proposition would be one that all of us would much prefer. Glory without suffering? Triumph without trials? Where do I sign up? How thankful I am that my Savior is not like me. With an exclamation mark, Jesus gives a final stamp of authority from Scripture, again from Deuteronomy, to rebuke the devil. And Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Jesus uses his name Satan, which is a Greek equivalent of the Hebrew word for adversary. He is, in his essence, the enemy of God. That is his nature. And it explains what he has been trying to do all along. Even though Jesus' quote of Deuteronomy 6 is slightly different to the original, the point is the same. Jesus uses the term worship to match what Satan said and to show that to fear the Lord is to also worship him. So Jesus' quote in this verse basically sums up what he has been doing all throughout this entire test, through each of the tests. In all of Satan's temptations, he was trying to get the Son of God to worship and serve something other than the Lord. But every time, Jesus trusted and obeyed the Lord and stood on his word. That is something Adam failed to do. He chose instead to trust and obey the devil's words. But now here, the true and the better Adam did not fail. It's also something Israel failed to do. They chose instead to distrust the Lord and to disobey his word. They preferred to live on bread alone and to test the Lord their God. But that is not 
what Jesus did. You see, where these previous sons of God failed, the Son of God succeeded. And in Him, friends, is where we find our strength and our hope to resist our own temptations. Which brings us to our final heading. Tempted as we are. Jesus was tempted as we are, but was without sin. Meaning, he passed the test. Is he the son of God? The result is positive. Two lines. He's the real deal. The genuine article. He did what no human before him had done. He trusted and obeyed the Lord perfectly. And this is confirmed by our final verse. Then the devil left him and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. The devil leaves and in yet another picture that calls to mind Elijah, angels minister to Jesus and look after him. As I mentioned before, Jesus refused to call upon angels according to the devil's will. But now God sends them to look after his son according to his will. But it's important to recognize that this isn't the last temptation by the devil that Jesus faced. It was an important one. It was a significant one. It was a signature temptation. One that certified God's word that Jesus is the son of God. But it wouldn't be the last. Luke's account tells us that the devil departed until an opportune time. Now, Luke doesn't uh, tell us uh, when that is. The devil doesn't come back into the story in the same way. But we see evil intent and acts several times throughout the Gospels. And one of the most obvious times is when Peter takes Jesus aside to rebuke him and say, no, Lord, you, you will not suffer these things. You won't be crucified, even though Jesus just said that that's what would happen in Matthew 16. Do you remember what Jesus says to Peter in response? Get behind me, Satan. Without realizing, Peter was doing the bidding of Satan because his mind was not on the things of God, but on the things of man. Those who scoffed at Jesus while he hung on the cross would echo the devil's very words from this passage. Matthew 27, 40, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the son of God, come down from the cross. The temptation Jesus faced to take a shortcut to glory at the beginning of his ministry would return with a vengeance in the midst of his greatest test. But once again, and once for all, he would pass that test. He would resist the temptation to call it quits on the cross. Brothers and sisters, as we resist temptation ourselves, we must 
fix our eyes on Jesus. And I don't mean just as somebody who inspires us. Oh, isn't it great that Jesus was able to do this? We should do the same. I mean, yes, that's, that's great. But, but we must primarily look to Jesus as the one who has enabled us to resist temptation because he was able to do it perfectly. Let me read to you Hebrews 4.15 and the following verse. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then, with confidence, draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Do you hear that? Do you hear the basis upon which we can draw near to the throne of grace? It's the Son of God, tempted as we are yet without sin. There is a difference between Jesus and us. And that difference results in the fact that his perfect record, his perfect obedience, and his trust in the Father enables us to draw near to the throne of grace and receive mercy and find grace. Why? Because in the gospel, his perfect record and his perfect obedience is counted to us by grace through faith in him. While he takes our sin and its consequences upon himself on the cross. Even though we are with sin, his sinlessness is counted to us through faith. If you haven't put your faith in Jesus, do so today. Brothers and sisters, when you face temptation, don't just close your eyes and repeat over and over. Be like Jesus. Be like Jesus. Quote more scripture. Memorize more scripture. Don't worship the devil. Go instead to the throne of grace. When you successfully resist temptation, praise the God of grace. Thank him for what he has done. Thank the Lord for his mercy in your life. When you fail to resist temptation, receive mercy from the throne of grace. Go to him, plead with him, and understand and know that he has forgiven you in Christ. You see, it's not on the basis of your perfect resistance to the devil, of your perfect resistance to temptation that makes it possible for you to come to him. After all, you don't have a perfect record. No, you come to him on the basis of his perfect record. When you're faced with temptation to sin, whether small or great, fix your eyes on Jesus. Because it is in the testing of your faith that God is shaping you more and more into the image of his Son. To be one who lives by God's word. To be one who trusts and doesn't test the Lord. To be one who worships him and serves him only. And who knows what trials today you face are sanctifying you and preparing you for greater tests down the road. 
Let me finish by reading from Hebrews chapter 12. The first two verses you're probably familiar with, but the whole chapter is worth reading when it comes to thinking about how we endure through trials and temptations. I encourage you to go and meditate on it this afternoon. It's worth reading the whole chapter, but I'll just read the first four verses. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. Jesus went before you, shedding his blood so that you could fix your eyes on him and resist the devil. I know I'm too weak to resist temptation on my own. Will you join me in trusting the Son of God and His Word? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, when faced with this issue of temptation and endurance through trials and tests, we are all too aware of our imperfection of our lack of trust and of our lack of obedience. And so it is with great joy and delight that as we've meditated on this morning, we see our Savior, the one who did not fail to trust you, who did not fail to be obedient to you, who did not fail to resist the temptations of the devil. Lord, may you lift our eyes to see him, to look to him, to trust in him, to draw near to the throne of grace and receive mercy because of his perfection. We ask this in his name. Amen.